Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Now, let's get over to Michael Dean is a Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Autos Analyst. I probably read more of Michael Dean's research than anyone else on the Bloomberg Terminal. (laughs) Um, No, I definitely do. And he joins us now to talk about Ferrari's new CEO. Michael, it's been a long time coming. We've been waiting for a name to replace Louis Camilleri. And now we get um, someone I never heard of from ST Microelectronics who designs what, like touchscreen interactivity? Yes, that's right. Um, I haven't heard of him either. And he's certainly unknown to auto investors. But it shouldn't be a surprise because it was only back on April the 15th that John Elkin, the um, Ferrari CEO and chairman at the time, said that he wanted someone with a tech background. So that's what we've got at the moment. All right. But, you know, I'm not a car geek like Matt Miller and you and Kevin Tynan, but um, I love the sound of, a, you know, a Ferrari roaring down the street here. What happens when they become electric? <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one, because if you listen to the aficionados, they will say, you know, we don't want electric. That certainly happened to Porsche. Um, but we've seen with the Taycan, it can be very successful. And we've seen from the competing luxury brands, such as with Lamborghini, Bentley and Rolls-Royce, they all have electrification strategies. That's the way it, it's going. And even Ferrari have said they're going to have their first battery electric vehicle in 2025. You know, this. Um, yesterday I was listening to David uh, Weston. He was interviewing one of Ford's big execs on their new pickup truck that um, it, it looks pretty cool. It's less than $20,000. Um, it's the Maverick. Uh, it's a small, smaller pickup truck, but it's going to be a hybrid. And David said, why didn't you go fully electric? Like doing a hybrid was almost a fail. No offense to David, but that's <laughs> kind of the general um, that's the general thought right now. Why is fully electric considered better than the hybrid, which to me is a far better solution? Well, I think it's all to do with valuation. If you look at um, where Tesla's valued and the legacy automakers want, want to have some of that sort of tech um, valuation rubbing off on them, and they can't do that unless they're fully electric, or that's the perception. And that's why Volkswagen's had such a good run this year, because it's jumping in with both feet in terms of full, full electrification, and it's probably going to overtake Tesla by 2024. And hybrids are seen as a halfway house, you know, still, you know, combustion engine and only half electric. And, you know, uh, in the future, all cars will be fully electric, I'm sure. Oh, boy. All right. So, Michael, where is Ferrari? Uh, you, you, you kind of suggested that they're behind some of their key competitors like Porsche and Lamborghini. Is that, in and fact, the, the case? this year has underperformed shockingly. Yeah. Yeah, I think part of the reason is because they don't have a well-defined okay. electrification strategy. So their target was to have 60% um, of their vehicles sold next year being hybrids. They're well behind with that. So what the new CEO has to do and what will probably happen in the first quarter of next year is come out with a well-defined electrification strategy, also a carbon neutral strategy that will satisfy um, investors. What does this mean for the super fast V12? Is that going to go the way of the stick shift at Ferrari? Yeah, I think so. So they've just announced um, a special edition V12, which sells for half a million euros. They're only making 500 of them, so get in quickly. 
Um, but that could be the last V12 from Ferrari. And probably the next main engine that they'll have will be a V6 hybrid. Yeah, Matt, you should know I've asked uh, Michael Dean on many occasions in his interactions with BMW to bring back the stick shift for the 5 Series here in America. They've discontinued it. I'm just crushed here. Well, but the date, Michael, you've had you've this totally stuff. tried. <laughs> Michael has tried, but to, to no avail. I actually, uh, um, there was a time at Fiat Chrysler when I sat down with Sergio. They were just putting out the Alfa Romeo 4C, and I said, why don't you make a stick shift? I mean, this is the car that needs to have a manual transmission. And he said, Matt, you and I would be the only buyers. Yep. And, and Michael, that's, is, that a, is that a global trend? I mean, it seems like I see more stick shifts in Europe than I do certainly in the U.S. Uh, you don't see, see uh, many of them anymore over here. But okay. what I would say, you know, drive a Porsche Taycan and afterwards say that, you know, electrification isn't bad for, for cars going forward. <laughs> I, I'm sure it's amazing. I haven't driven one yet, but I, I would miss the, the roar or I the know. scream in I terms know. of the boxer I know. of the All engine right. Michael, behind me. Yeah, Michael Dean, thank you so much for joining us. Always appreciate chatting with you, particularly Matt appreciates chatting with you, talking cars. Senior analyst, he covers the European automotive business. Uh, good partner with Kevin Tynan, who covers the, the U.S. auto guys, and they together put out some great uh, global research on the global automotive business B. for Go. Bloomberg Intelligence and B.I. Go, and you can find all that good stuff there. Let's talk about cybersecurity because we've seen so many of these ransomware attacks, um, Colonial Pipeline and JBS, yep. the biggest of late. Um, but we've also seen issues pop up. Yesterday, it turned out to be maybe a fat finger on the part of <laughs> Fastly, but it kind of freaked out um, markets for a moment. We saw charts go a little bit haywire when um, the, the internet appeared to stop working for a moment. Shannon Wilkinson joins us, founder and CEO of Tago Cyber. And uh, just just in, in terms of what we saw yesterday, Shannon, it turned out to be NBD, but for a, for, a, for a moment it seemed as if something horrible may have happened. Is it possible that a cyber attack could just shut down the World Wide Web for a little while? Absolutely. It would be interesting. And if you remember a couple of years ago, the Internet went down on the East Coast due to another fat finger configuration error at one of the domain uh, registry services. So it's absolutely possible either that a cyber attack or one of these engineer issues could absolutely take the Internet down. And even Russia had some issues with their Internet when they tried to do some sort of blocking of Twitter and some of the social media platforms at their ISP level. Um, they actually fat-fingered or made some configuration errors and took down the Internet within Russia for um, about half a day, I think it was. So and it's key, it's key it, to point it, it out, this doesn't possible. mean um, – it's not simply, you know, no more cat photos on Instagram – there are ways that the internet works um, in these times, you know, that, that are vital to human life, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we live in a very connected world, and we've seen this migration the, to to the cloud as well as digitalization of business. So everything is connected now. Businesses are relying on internet cloud providers to provide essential business services, and when those services aren't available, business stops. Shannon, it just seems like it's getting so much more frequent here. Give us a sense of how much of this is just 
you know, a knucklehead in a garage somewhere, you know, up to no good versus maybe some state actors or organized crime. Where's this all coming from? It's definitely a combination of both. The Colonial Pipeline and the JBSs, those are more state-sponsored affiliate cybercrime groups. And then you, you also have on the flip side what is known as the script kiddies, the, the you know, atypical hooded basement dwelling hacker right. that, you know, is just going out there for fun and, and seeing what, you know, kind of disruption or damage they can do. Um, so it's definitely a combination of both of those factors. And businesses just really need to um, think about their services and what they do and how much they rely on their technology for business. In the uh, colonial CEO's testimony to Congress yesterday, yeah. we found out that they didn't even have a ransomware plan in place, even though they spend something like $40 million a year on cybersecurity. They never even considered what would happen if we got hit by a ransomware attack. They didn't even have a two-step security process. Right. I mean, I can't even right. log into my computer at work without submitting my fingerprint or, you know, a code from a token. In any case, um, mm -hmm. There, there's the opposite side of that, right? Like um, the company that runs Kraken, we had a great story about them. They have gone as far as to make your kids, eight-year-old kids, sign NDA agreements when they go to <laughs> company picnics. And you've got to change into everybody wears the same clothes at work um, so that they won't be able to the, – the bad guys won't be able to tell exactly who you are. You've got to kill all your social media um, profiles. How far do, do companies need to be going, Jen? I think it's about finding a balance. Kraken might be going a little bit over the top on, on their security protocols, but it, I think it's about finding a good balance of what makes sense and what is secure. So definitely ensuring that you have two-factor authentication. I mean, Colonial Pipeline, we found out, I think, Bloomberg broke the news, but it was due to a single compromised account at Colonial Pipeline that was the factor that resulted in the ransomware attack there. So a single employee account allowed the ransomware to be activated on the network. So enabling two-factor authentication, having security um, protocols in place, having plans for when incidents occur, and, and just really finding a good balance between what will not disrupt the secure, the operations of the business right. and what's a good balance for security at the business as well. So, you know, kind of a marriage of business strategy and cybersecurity strategy working together to make sure that the business can continue operating in this new digital age. Shannon, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate getting your thoughts on insight on this uh, rising issue ransomware in corporate America. Shannon Wilkinson, founder and CEO of Tego Cyber. Well, for you flashback, you know, a little bit more than a year ago when we started this pandemic and the resulting economic contraction that we experienced was just extraordinary, historic, but the recovery has been as well as the vaccines get in uh, across uh, the U.S. The economy is reopening. And we're seeing that in the stock market as well as a lot of those reopening plays are working very well for investors. Brad McMillan, he's the chief investment officer of Commonwealth Financial Network. They have about $232 billion in assets under management. So a couple shekels there. Brad joins us here. Brad, thanks so much for coming on. I'd love to get your thoughts here as we look back over the last 15 years and Again, the beginning of the pandemic, the contraction in the economy, and then the reopening. 
How are you telling your clients to position their portfolios here as this reopening seems to be really gaining some momentum here in the United States? I think it's important to put this into context because when we talk about the pullback, when we talk about the recession, yes, of course, it was the pandemic. But it was really, from an economic perspective, the policy response to the pandemic that sunk the economy, the shutdowns. So when you look at this, what we're seeing, you know, yes, we've seen a fantastic recovery. But we're largely just recovering back to the previous trend line. So as we move past the pandemic, it's about the economy and the economy continues to do extremely well. You know, I think we've still got some more upside ahead. But wasn't there any serious damage done by the government stepping in and shutting everything down? Well, of course there was, and that was the pullback. But then the question becomes, how lasting is that damage? The damage was real, and it was substantial in the short term. And if we, if the government had left it at that, then we very well might be looking at a depression right now. But that's not what they did. They gave the uh, cushion to get us through that and to get us back to reopening. And because of that, we're simply in a place where, if you look year on year, absolutely huge, huge changes. If you look over the past two years, actually, we're still pretty much on track. So, uh, Brad, one of the things that uh, you know I'm, I think about a lot is kind of how will consumer behaviors change or will they change uh, post-pandemic as we come out on the other side of this? For example, will people go on cruise ships? Will they you know, go on planes and things like that? Will they go to movie theaters? How are you thinking about that? And if you made any you know, investment calls based upon what you think might be some changing consumer behaviors? Well, certainly when you look at the airline numbers, you know, you can make a good case that leisure travel is well on its way back. The real question there from an investment perspective is going to be our business travelers going to be coming back because that's where a lot of the profits come from. And there, I think the news is a lot more mixed. So certainly when you look at the headlines, I think it's fair to say people are changing their behaviors. I don't think the um, the extensive use of Internet shopping, for example, is going to go away. People have found out how easy that is. But more common things like restaurants, absolutely, they're coming back. And I think the market's already gotten ahead of that. I don't think there's a lot of opportunity there at the moment. But certainly, you know, there was some money to be made about with that, you know, six to eight months ago when the uncertainty was at a peak. So where is the opportunity? I mean, if you've got spare cash sitting around and need to put it to work, what do you do with it? I think the stock market in general is a good place because when you look at um, the earnings expectations and how the market's priced, we're still in a position to see earnings go up. I think healthcare, there are some opportunities that um, still very much we're seeing a revolution, particularly in biotech. You know, that hasn't been fully appreciated yet. Um, some firms are now putting in um, requests to evaluate vaccines for the flu. And if that comes through, I mean, obviously that would be huge. So there's knowledge opportunities. If you want something that's a little bit more basic, I think financials, I think as the economy normalizes, we're going to see interest rates normalize. And that's going to give a tailwind to financials. And I still think there's some opportunities there. 
So, uh, Brad, as this economy reopens, one of the things that, uh, you know, economists are really looking closely at certainly is the employment, uh, getting people back to work. And we're still, we've had a couple months of kind of below expectation uh, job uh, numbers. How concerned are you about that? Are you concerned that perhaps something structurally may have changed in this economy where, you know, some of those jobs just aren't going to come back? If you go back, that that's a common fear, and I don't agree with it. I was actually just looking at that this morning. Because if you go back to prior crises, what typically happens is people move out of the labor force, okay? So they say, okay, it's not worth it, and then the economy starts to open up, wages start to rise again, and then they move back in. And that's exactly what we're seeing. If you look at the not-in-the-labor-force people, that's, the people who want a job, that is right now at about the same level as the total number of jobs available. So it's just a question of getting those people back into the labor force. And if you look at that, you can see them actually that you can see that happening. So I think that's the first thing. This is a totally normal process. We've seen this movie before. I think the other thing that um, is getting people a little too wound up is they're saying, how do we get back to the record low unemployment levels we saw before the pandemic? Frankly, that was unusual. If you look at the averages, we'll be if five percent is a pretty normal unemployment rate. We should be there in the next three to six months. And after that, it's just real progress. So I think by the end of the year, we'll be fine. Brad, thanks very much for joining us. Brad McMillan is the chief investment officer at Commonwealth Financial Network. As Paul says, they have $233 billion under management, looking at a continued recovery for the economy back to the trend that we saw before the pandemic. And as he points out, that trend was very good. We were doing quite well economically before this thing hit and we shut all of our businesses down. This is Bloomberg. All right, Matt, you know, one of the reasons I always love these big take stories is because they often get me to say, I didn't think of that. Or, you know, that's how it works. Um, This most recent story, we're talking about big oil companies, Matt. We've seen all the news, shareholders forcing them to go green, uh, you know, reduce their carbon footprint. But there's still demand out there for energy. So who's filling that void as some of the big majors pull back? Kevin Crowley, he's a U.S. oil reporter for Bloomberg News. He joins us with his big big take story entitled The Retreat of Exxon and the Oil Majors Won't Stop Fossil Fuel. Kevin, thanks so much for for joining us here. And I love your story here because it really goes to the issue of, okay, Exxon and Chevron and Shell and all those guys, they're pulling back on their energy footprint. But who's filling the void? Well, exactly. Yeah, that's the that's the, that's the big question. And really, what we're saying here is it's national oil companies. So those from those from Saudi Arabia, those from Russia, those from um, those from parts of Africa. You know, these are these are these are companies that um, you know are less transparent and 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 have a um, a less strong climate record. Um, and also, um, really, are only beholden to their to their national governments. They do not have the same kind of uh, shareholder pressure that uh, the publicly listed entities have. Um, and so, um, really, uh, by the oil majors retreating, it it opens the gate for these companies to come in and uh, and fill the gap, which will pose a new challenge for uh, climate activists going forward. I mean, the headline could well be climate activists at oil majors shoot themselves in the foot because basically they're they're 
convincing, um, you know, these publicly traded companies to hand back oil production or hand over oil production to um, Chinese nationals, Russian nationals, Middle East nationals. And they're not going to do such a great job when it comes to um, shrinking their carbon footprint. Well, I think that's I think that, I think that's true, and I think yeah. But I think I think the climate movement um, is focused on big oil because it's really it's the um, it's the lowest hanging fruit, um, and so you know these were these are these are companies that are beholden to their shareholders and climate activists. You know, have worked over many many years to um, to to gain influence through uh, <laughs> through the shareholding. I mean, the most recent example was Exxon um, lost three directors um, just a, just a few weeks ago as a result of uh, growing climate climate activism. Um, but it's, and it's not just the climate activists, Kevin. I noticed recently when Congress was questioning um, CEOs of the big banks, they were chiding them for doing business with big oil majors, almost throwing national um, security, energy security concerns aside. Well, that's right. That's right. Yeah, it's it's under pressure from. I mean, these the oil companies under pressure from 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 political class. Uh, they're under pressure from from the from the banks who are looking to clean up their own carbon footprint. Shareholders, consumers, everyone, everyone, everyone around, everyone is rounding on them now. And I think, but I think, but I think it's 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 really it's a it's, they are the lowest hanging fruit here. And I think the climate movement thinks that you know if we can if we can get these guys to change. Uh, the Exxon, Chevron, Shell, BPs of the world, then other 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 companies will will fall in line and will follow. Because while the oil majors only produce around 15% of the world's oil at the moment, um, they are at the forefront of um, much of the technolo- <laughs> technologies around, and they do lead. So, so um, the thinking is that maybe you know some of these national oil companies will start to, will start to uh, to follow their lead if if big oil does make a successful pivot uh, towards greener energy. It's interesting because you know that part of your story where Exxon was getting out of an Iraqi field and you know they tried to sell their stake, but nobody else would was even bidding for it. So then I guess Iraq had to come in and buy it, or China, or China will take yeah. it, right? Well, the process, yeah, the process is ongoing, but it's actually a remarkable, it's actually a remarkable turn, turn of events. I mean, this was this was one of the prized oil um, after after the second Iraq War. Um, Exxon stepped in to uh, to take it, and really, it hasn't really performed um, as well as they would like. They're looking to they're looking to get out of it, but uh, as you as you say, none of the none of the other majors want to take it, and uh, Iraq. Um, uh, made a statement that actually they were interested in buying it themselves, which is um, which is remarkable, really. I mean, whether it whether it actually happens or not is uh, is another thing. But uh, the fact that they're even considering uh, taking taking the stake is uh, is quite is quite a remarkable turn of events. And of course, the other option then is the uh, the Chinese state state oil backed company. So either way, um, this field is likely to move out of the hands of a Western super major and into the hands of um, um, state uh, state backed entity which uh, which are far less transparent than uh, the ones than the big oil companies that you have to wonder at some point if the u.s government and other western governments are going to say hang on a second this isn't working out the way we wanted it to um i noticed in your story that mexico's pemex for example is set to buy a texas refinery from shell so uh, it's not even just properties abroad that are going to these nationals it's even uh, um you know part of the infrastructure on on home soil if you will 
That's right. That's right. That was uh, that was uh, <laughs> that was another surprising turn of events because um, you know obviously um, most of the time it's the private private oil companies you know buying assets from or investing with state-owned oil companies and really in this in this situation Pemex and Shell were actually having the uh, the reverse happening. But uh, really, it comes back to demand. Um, you know, if if um, assuming demand stays strong as it has, demand for oil and gas stays strong as it has. Done, done coming out of the out of the pandemic it really this whole uh, retraction from from the the majors really opens the door to the to these national oil companies you know who who are going to be the the producers of uh, of last resort so you know while while we while the west is doing certainly doing a job on the supply side i think the big big challenge really is to uh, to reduce fossil fossil fuels is on the demand side as long as people keep consuming oil and gas you know, companies will step in to produce it. Now, whether that's the majors or whether that's the national oil companies, you know, as long as people are using oil and gas, um, you know, companies are going to be there to provide it. Mm, absolutely. Hey, great piece, Kevin. Really love um, the Big Take series, and I loved this one especially. So congratulations on that. Kevin Crowley, Laura Hurst, and Rachel Adams heard writing, The Retreat of Exxon and the Oil Majors Won't Stop Fossil Fuel. Check it out. NI Big Take Go. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.